Well, hey everyone, it's Pastor Brian. Welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm here once again with Pastor Ross Anderson, and we're in week number four in our conversation around the Trinity. So Ross, why don't you tell us where we've been in the first three weeks and where are we going to go today as we talk about the deity of the three? Yeah, well, first of all, we're operating out of a simple definition to help us understand at least what the doctrine of the Trinity is actually saying. And our definition, we simply say there's one God who exists eternally in three persons. And what we've been doing in the series, first of all, we've talked about, well, why is that hard to understand? It's a mystery, because God is infinite, we're finite, and we're okay with that. And then what we're doing in the series is we're saying, how does the Bible support those different aspects of the definition, saying, okay, the only reason we really believe this is because it's what the Bible teaches, and it's in fact the only view of God that takes seriously everything the Bible has to say. And so we've been looking at the different things that the Bible has to say. Well, right, because in really this is sort of our first point for today. At the heart of the Trinity is the claim that all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are fully God. In other words, um, because I think even a lot of Christians might think this, Jesus isn't JV, a JV God. Jesus isn't just kind of God, but fa- the Father's really God. Know that, that the heart of the doctrinal definition, an orthodox definition of the Trinity, is that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, all of them are fully God. And I know for s- some people they say, well, the math doesn't add up. Yeah, that, and this follows up on what we looked at last time, where we talked about the distinction of the three persons. Okay, so God is, God is unity in one sense, in a different sense, God is diversity. And so we're not saying that there's one God and there's also three gods, but we're saying that in, with respect to his being, he's one. With respect to the distinctions of his personhood, there's three. And so that what was implied maybe in that is that the three are deity, um, but we want to make that clear to our listeners that the Bible fully supports the deity of each of these three persons, that we can really say, yes, Jesus is God in, with a capital G, and we can say the same of the Holy Spirit. And so historically there's been a tension, and not just historically, probably some of the listeners have felt this tension as they've listened to these podcasts, and maybe they've used the resources at Pursue God in their small group or in a mentoring relationship, but the tension is, it doesn't, it doesn't seem... Uh, it doesn't seem right, this one and three, and so part of the way we try to resolve that tension is heresy, is to right. deny the deity of all three. But maybe talk to that for a second. Historically, how have people uh, tried to resolve that tension? Right, it depends on... Very few people have tried to resolve the tension by saying, there's not just one God, there's more than one God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a minority, very minority. And then other people have tried, we saw last time, have tried to resolve the tension by saying, there's not three distinct persons, there's just one God who operates in three modes of being. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're going to say, another way today we're going to explore that people have tried to resolve that paradox is to say, well, the Son or the Spirit are not really fully God. There's only one God, and so to avoid kind of tritheism, people will say, well, that must mean that Jesus is somehow lesser than God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, even some believers might not have articulated it like that, but maybe some listeners would say, but 
Yeah, I, I think that's what I've believed. And so that's why this, this lesson today is really important. We're going to explore the deity of the three. Now, we're not going to worry about defending the deity of the Father, right, Ross? Well, the fact is that that's really easy in the Scripture. It's so easy and so obvious in the Bible that nobody has ever contested that. So no heresies are built around the idea that, that only Jesus is God and the Father isn't, right. or something like that. So we'll leave that off the table for, for today. Um, but what we are going to talk about is the deity of Jesus, which mm-hmm. is it's really important, I think, for listeners to understand, because we've said this before. I think we said this in week one in the series. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you, because what you believe about Jesus has the most impact on your eternity. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear about this. The Bible says that if you trust in Jesus and believe in what he did, the, his work on the cross, then you'll be saved. So Jesus is the object of our faith, and the object of our faith is really important. So what we're going to do today, Ross, is we're going to save that part of it, the deity of Christ, we're going to save that for the end. Let's let's start by um, discussing the deity of the Holy Spirit. And I want to just start with this, because a lot of people, me included, I sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit as it. The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit is not an it, right? The Holy Spirit is a... We refer to the Holy Spirit as a he. Right. So we're talking about three persons. The Holy Spirit is a person. Right. And so not some kind of force, or electricity, gravity, or, or some kind of spiritual force out there, yes. So, okay, so here's what we believe. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. The Bible clearly equates the Spirit with God, not God Jr., not just um, God's, not even just God's Spirit, mm-hmm. like we have a Spirit, right. but no, the person, the Holy Spirit is personal and is fully God. Right, not an emanation of God mm-hmm. or not just the, f- the force of God or power of God, but personal, a personal being, a person who is God. And there's a couple of ways that the Bible approaches that. There's no verse anywhere that says, the Holy Spirit is God, Mm. right? But clearly the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as having qualities that only God has. Okay, so let me give some scripture here. And if you're listening at home, um, you can find this at pursuegod.org forward slash trinity. You don't need to write all of this down because you can find all of this. This is lesson four in that series. But I'm going to give you some scripture here. So the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as having the qualities that only God has. Here are some examples. He's eternal, Hebrews 9, 14. He's omnipresent, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. He's all-knowing. Notice, by the way, I'm saying he is, not Mm -hmm. it is. He is. So I'm doing okay so far. It's a good (laughs) reflex. It's kind of good training our audience here, right? Right. He is all-knowing, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. He is all-powerful, Luke 1, 35. Also, the Holy Spirit does things that only God can rightly do. Here are some mm-hmm. examples of that. Creation, Genesis 1, verse 2. Uh, the authorship of Scripture, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. And the granting of life, Romans 8, 11. Again, I went through that really quickly, but it's real, I think it's so important for us to look to Scripture, right? We look to God and His Word and all that we do, so we want to see what Scripture has to say about it, and I want to encourage anyone who's listening to this who's struggling with um, agreeing that the Holy Spirit is fully God, just read the Scripture and let Scripture speak mm-hmm. to those issues for you. Yeah, and there's even there's more things that could be said along this, these lines. 
Uh, for example, there's passages in the Old Testament that speak of God, Elohim or Jehovah, and those passages are quoted in the New Testament as referring to the Holy Spirit. So mm. another way that they're equated. And, and so, yeah, like I said, there's no place that says the Holy Spirit is God, but you amass all of the data points, and it becomes a really clear picture. Right. Okay, before we move, move on from this, let's talk about Acts 5. Let's spend a little bit of time on Acts chapter 5. So for those who don't know, this is where... Uh, the Holy Spirit is equated with God. Uh, let's set let's set this up. So in the early church, uh, a lot of times people sold their lands and their goods, and they gave money to the, to the church to help the poor. Now there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter five. When Ananias did that, he kept back some of the proceeds of the sale for himself. Again, you can read all of this in Acts chapter five, but he claimed to have given the full amount. Right? He comes to Peter and to the leaders. He says that he gave the full amount. When he brought the money to the apostles, Acts 5.3, Peter called out to him and he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit and, and kept some of the money for yourself. And then in the next verse, he says, you weren't lying to us, but to God. So what's Peter doing here in Acts 5? Right. Peter, in Peter's mind, to lie to the Holy Spirit was the same as lying to God. So he makes an equation of the two. He says, essentially, that Holy Spirit is God. It's pretty clear in that regard. Now, the story's not about the Holy Spirit, but in the way that Peter interacts with the Holy Spirit and brings the Holy Spirit into the, into the context, it's really clear that Peter, the apostle, understands the Holy Spirit to be God. Now, let's pause here. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but how, how much do you think Peter... Paul, the early apostles, really understood as far as being able to articulate this, because it's we have to sort of just figure that out from the context that we, we get. One of the things that we learned a few weeks ago is that God progressively revealed himself. God doesn't change, but his revelation of himself was something that progressively unfolded from Old Testament to New Testament, right? So even the disciples... I think we're still, in even in Acts chapter 5, in my opinion, Ross, I don't know what you think, I think even Peter was still trying to put together exactly how this worked, that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Yeah, there's no way that the first century biblical writers would have formulated it in the language that developed over time, mm -hmm. uh, that was developed at the Council of Nicaea and in future councils as well, because th those ideas hadn't been challenged yet. And so... Nobody had come along, the, along saying, no, the Holy Spirit's not God, and so it wasn't challenged, and so there's this sort of operational implication mm -hmm. that, that this, is how it, this is just how they inter, interacted with God. They'd seen the power of the Holy Spirit, they'd experienced the leading and the dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit, and so in their experience, they knew that, that there was something divine at work, some, some deity was at work in the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to formulate it the way that we do today, because the challenges hadn't arisen yet. But the challenges did arise when it comes to Jesus and his nature. So before we even get into this, Ross, um, this was the first thing that the church councils had to, had to articulate, right? When, it, when we talk about the Trinity, actually the first part of that is that Jesus is fully God. And then the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is fully God, was, was, would you say, was secondary then to that debate? Yeah, and the two really go together. Right. Um, if they're, either they're all 
three are fully God or the other two aren't, period. You right. know, so it's not like nobody would nobody would assert that the Father and the Spirit are God, but the Son isn't, mm-hmm. or the Father and the Son, but not the Spirit. It kind of it's kind of a, a whole thing. Okay, so let's jump in then to the deity of Jesus. We covered the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the deity of Jesus, and let's finish. Let's finish here today with uh, a heresy that did rise up in the early church. Mm-hmm. We'll make sure to get to that. But here's. Let's start with this. The biblical writers claim that Jesus is fully God, is fully equal to the Father, and Jesus Himself made the same claim. So this is something uh, that. That I've said in the past, that we 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 see this all through Scripture. Jesus at least thought he was God, right? right so right. You, we can't say, as C.S. Lewis said, you can't just say he was a good teacher, a good prophet, or or, or a religious leader. Jesus would, was a lunatic if he wasn't God, because Jesus. Anyone in today's day and age that claims to be God, you would you'd probably say you're crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so we're ultimately we're going to get to the point where we say we have to agree that Jesus claimed to be God. You don't have to agree with that claim, mm-hmm. but you have to be able to explain everything else about Jesus if you deny that claim. Mm-hmm. That, that's challenging. And so as a result of that, that's why the biblical writers also um, acknowledged, uh, recognized the, the deity of Jesus, that he was somehow um, within the framework of monotheism, that he was somehow really truly god okay so let's let's start with some scripture and one of the best portions of scripture to start with i think when you're talking about the deity of christ is john chapter one okay so this is one of jesus's this is jesus's beloved disciple john Mm -hmm. he's writing this in his gospel and he says this in the beginning the word capital w already existed the word was with god and the word was god who is John talking about here? Well, he's okay. So this is a this is challenging because he uses language that we're not that familiar with, or that nobody else in the New Testament uses mm-hmm. to call to call to identify this in, this character called the Word. Well, we find out down in chapter in verse fourteen of the same chapter. Ultimately, he's talking about Jesus because he says the Word became flesh and made his home among mm-hmm. us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of. Uh, the the one and only Son of the Father. Mm-hmm. So, and then he, from there on, he talks about the earthly Jesus in the rest of the chapter, and so he's introducing Jesus to us before he was born as Jesus, before the incarnation. We talk about the incarnation that God became human. So, so who was that being that we know as Jesus? Who was that being before he was born? into a human family and given the name Jesus. He mm-hmm. wasn't named Jesus from eternity past. Mm-hmm. And John identifies him with this title, um, the Word, which has a whole, a lot of other things we could say about that, but, but just simply suffice it for now to say that this is talking about Jesus before he became human. Okay, because, and again, listeners have to understand that. I remember when I first learned this, it, it made my head spin for a little bit. It's not that complicated, but you just get used to talking about Jesus, G, that Jesus always existed, and that's that's true, sort of. What's true is that the wor- the second person of the Trinity always existed because he is God, and so he eternally existed. But his name, like you said, Ross, his name wasn't Jesus. I don't think God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, like... We're like, what's up, Jesus? 
you know, 3,000 years ago. I guess right. they could have because they knew what his name would be. But it was the word. He's the, the second person of the Trinity is the word. So we don't obviously see the name of Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. Um, we see a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the right. Old Testament. But when he, when, when God the Son took on flesh, that's when he took on the name Jesus. But the word always existed. I do think it would be helpful for our listeners, Ross, to talk a little bit about the Greek word for word, and that word is logos. What was the concept right. that John was trying to articulate to his Greek audience? Right. In, a, in Greek culture, the logos is, had, is this idea of this generative power. This, this creative power, this being somehow, you know, in Greek culture, an impersonal being, impersonal force almost, but he's saying this is like the source of things that exist. And so that's why, I think that's why in verse 3 he talks about how um, the Word is engaged with, with God in creation. Okay, so let's go back to that, because this is good. Now that you've got a little more context uh, for the listeners, let's read John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3 again. In the beginning... The Word already existed. This sort of mirrors Genesis 1. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and again, this is Jesus. He's talking about the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning, the second person of the Trinity already existed. The second person of the Trinity was with God in the beginning. And the second person of the Trinity was God in the beginning. It says in verse 2, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through the second person of the Trinity. I'm going to use that word. Mm -hmm. And nothing was created except through him. Verse 4, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, the the distinction in the roles of the persons Mm -hmm. of the Trinity. Um, It says, the light shines in the darkness. Again, a reference back to, I think, Genesis 1, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then you, you mentioned verse 14, if we skip down to verse 14, where, where John sort of summarizes this whole section at the beginning of his letter. He says, so the Word, again, talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Word became human and made his home among us. That's when he got the name Jesus. He was full of unfailing love and, un- and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Right, and so what is it? What are the things that we see in this passage about the deity of Jesus? Point this out for us. Right, I think there's at least three things. First of all, let me say that based on verse 14, we can identify uh, this this individual not just as the second person in the Trinity. We can just call him the Son, right? So, yeah, yeah, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's good. So that's where that language comes from. But a couple things. Number one, he's eternal because it says, "In the beginning was the Word." In the very beginning, he's envisioning, you know, the time before time, the, the, the ultimate origin of everything. He was there, so he's eternal. That means he's not a created being. He said he was with God, and that he was God. And so they're, they're starting to mess with our monotheistic mind a little bit right. to say, wait, he was with God and he was God. Wait. And, and, and as we look at the whole data of Scripture, we'd say, well, the Son was there with the Father, okay, not, not some other God, right? And so that's how we put that together. But then the third thing that identifies him as deity is his role in creation. Again, this is something that only a divine being does, is to create out of no, something out of nothing. And then in verse 14, which we read there at the end, then... He identifies who this character is when he says the Word became human as the Father's 
one and only son. So it's clear that John is talking about Jesus before his human birth. And so what I think is happening here, Ross, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the, the beloved disciple John writes this gospel. I think this is his attempt at articulating what what we've been trying to articulate in these podcasts. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe if he had the benefit of some of the counsels and some of the language we've used, maybe he would have used the word Trinity, but he doesn't. And again, I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that does that doesn't mean it's a man-made construct. Right. It's just a word that we've put we've used to articulate something that is so clearly being referenced here in scripture and John chapter one verses one through fourteen uh, are the beloved disciple John's attempt at that. Yeah, you could see I mean John uh, the gospel of John was written sometime after Jesus um died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. So he's been thinking about this. He's been trying to grapple with how to articulate this over time. And what we see is that um, all of the raw materials uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity are there in Scripture. It just took some time for people to put, put all the, connect all the dots and formulate all the things that are already there. And so John's working on that. Let's, let's see who else worked on that in the New Testament. Okay, so Romans 9.5. The Apostle Paul says, he is speaking of Jesus, he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. And of course, Hebrews 1, 3 says that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. That's a big one that we always point to. Right. And so just even Romans 9, he calls him God, but more than that, there's two other things there. He says he rules over everything. Well, who rules over everything if not God? And it says that he's worthy of eternal praise. We'll come back to that later. If he's worthy of worship and praise, only God is worthy of praise. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. And so and then Hebrews Hebrews one, we don't we don't know who the author of Hebrews is necessarily, but the but he clearly is articulating the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. I guess someone might say, well, wait, that doesn't say that he is God. It just says that he's like God or radiates God. How would you, how would you answer yeah, that? The, the, the language that's used in Hebrews 1 is like if you, um, if you mint a coin, the coin is exactly the same as the mint. So it's an exact representation of the thing. So it, in a sense, it's a copy, but it's a perfect copy. And so um, to say that something else possesses a, a perfectly everything that belongs to God, that, that thing has to be God. If it, if it possesses all the things or reflects all the things that are fully God, then that, that, that thing, that person is likewise has to be God. Okay, so let's cover a couple more scripture passages here. I, I know this is a lot, but some some folks, this is what they need. They need to mm-hmm. see where scripture clearly points to this. So Bible writers also attribute to Jesus works that only God can do. So here are some examples of that. Creation, if you want to look this up, mm-hmm. we, won't, we don't have time to get into it, but Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So those are you know, again, only God can create, and yet those verses are saying that Jesus is the one who created. Mm-hmm. Or how about forgiveness of sin? You can find that in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Or judgment, which is something that only God can do, and yet we see that Jesus is the one who judges in John 5, verses 22 
to 30. And then finally, salvation. You know, the Old Testament said, we, we learned this in week two, uh, the, the Lord said, I think it was Isaiah 43, the Lord said, There's no other Savior yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm the only Savior, and yet then Jesus c- comes on the scene, and it's, it's clear that Jesus is claiming to be the Savior, and we even see uh, in Titus chapter 2 that it's referenced there that Jesus is the one uh, who's really the author of salvation, mm-hmm. verses 11 to 13. And then that leads to, I think, the, the, maybe the biggest thing, in my mind, this is the biggest thing, um, that Jesus himself claimed to be equal with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and again, this is where the early biblical writers got it from. They didn't make it up independently. They got it from Jesus, from his own actions, of course, his resurrection, his miracles, but but from his own claims. They yeah. heard what he said. Good point. And then, and so that's, you know, where they got the idea, oh, there must be something more here that than, than we could have imagined. And so... For there's a few simple things. There's a number of places where this plays out. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." In um, in John chapter 20, when Jesus has risen from the dead, uh, remember Thomas uh, didn't see him the first time, and he says, I "Only believe when I see him the second time." And Jesus shows up, shows Thomas the marks in his hands and so forth. Thomas's response to the risen Jesus, he says, "My Lord and my God," and he bows down before him. And Jesus could have corrected him, right? But he didn't. He accepted the, the praise. He accepted the acclamation and the identification uh, at, that, G, that Thomas called him God. And then, of course, the biggest one, and let's spend a little time on this. I want to read some scripture for people who are not familiar with John 8. At the very end of that long chapter, uh, Jesus is he's talking there to, what are they, the Pharisees, the religious it's leaders? It's a mixed group. It's, yeah. It includes the Pharisees, includes his own followers, includes crowds, but the, the religious leaders are there. Yeah, and Jesus Jesus makes some claims, and then in, verse, in John 8, verse 53, um, the question comes to Jesus. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He says, he died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? What a great question mm-hmm. in John 8, 50. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answered the question. And I want to highlight his answer. He said, he said in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Now that is an arrogant thing to say if you are not God. Yeah, if it's right? not true. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not true, that's just... Yeah. So part of me can understand a, a religious leader getting his hackles up at a statement like that, if you don't believe that Jesus is God. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. It says, the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus, here, here was his answer. Verse 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. What's going on there, Ross? Well, there's a couple of things going on. First of all, Jesus is claiming that he existed more than 2,000 years prior to this conversation, okay? Because if he claims that he saw Abraham, Abraham saw him, that there's some relationship back there, and that's what they're objecting to. He says, wait a minute, you're, only, you're not even 50 years old. So Jesus, first of all, is claiming this kind of eternality. Um, but then beyond that, it, this is where it gets really striking. He calls himself by one of the most important names in the Old Testament that God identified himself to his people as. He says, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, that's not just bad grammar. <laughs> now, he, he, you expect him to say, 
I was. Yeah. But by choosing those particular words, he identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament, who used those words in a particular place in uh, in his early dealings with, with his people. Right, it comes from when Moses is sort of getting to know God, Yahweh, the God of, of, of Israel, the God of, well, as we've learned in this series, the God of all creation, the mm-hmm. God of the universe, the, God, the only God that there is. And when God is introducing himself to Moses at, the, at that famous story of the burning bush, and God says, hey, Moses, you need to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and, and that whole story. And, and Moses says, well, who should I tell them is sending me? And God's, his name tag that God shows mm-hmm. is, he, he yeah. says, I am. Yeah. R- which really is, is speaking to his, his self-existence, right. right? His unchanging nature, not I was or I will be, just I am. I am who I've always been. I'm self-determined. I'm the creator God. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's so much more we could say about that name itself. Right. But, the name itself, so it's it's it, the name is a is a play on words of that idea of existence, the verb to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all the things that are incorporated in that, God says, "Hey Moses, tell them that I am is the one who sent you." And he goes on in the next verse. He says, "Tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you." And so not only identifying himself as that self-existent one, but identifying God isn't identifying himself as the God who interacted with all of Israel's forebears and their founding fathers, and he'd set this whole thing up, and he was the God, the only God that really the people knew. He's saying, this is who, who's sending me to you. And then f- again, fast forward now to John 8, here's a thousand plus years later, Jesus is talking, uh, he's teaching about Abraham, and in the context of that, he says, uh, he claims to be the I am from the burning bush. He Mm -hmm. claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Moses. And so naturally, it says in verse 59 in John 8, at that point, the listeners picked up stones to stone him. Why, Why did they want to stone him? Yes, stoning in the Old Testament, death by stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. And so they're picking up stones to kill him for this crime of blasphemy, blasphemy against God, because they understood that you, a mere human being in their mind, are claiming to be equal to God. So they totally understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. And if that's not what Jesus meant... Then he could have easily said, "Whoa, whoa, oops! I am so sorry." <laughs> Wait, put those stones down. Hold it, boys. Yeah, yeah. I think you misunderstood me, but that's not what Jesus. That's does. not what he did. No. Right? He had every opportunity to do that, and so he didn't take any of it back. Right. And so that, so yeah, you know, he was claiming equality with this Old Testament God who who met Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who met Moses. Uh, and all the rest. So, and they understood that's what he was saying for sure. So Jesus clearly, you know, this is what I would say to someone who's struggling with the deity of Jesus. I would say, well, then you should struggle in general with trusting in Jesus because mm-hmm. you're following someone who thought he was God. So if you don't think he's God, stop following him. That's what I would say to someone. Right. This is what is essentially what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Right. But there's no there's no room for a combination. He's one of those three things. He's he either lied about it, 
he's or he's crazy and he yeah. thinks he's God, or he really is God. Right. It's not intellectually honest just to dismiss these claims as if they don't matter. They matter significantly in one way or another, and you have to decide. Okay, so let's finish today's lesson with talking about um, a heresy. We've talked so far about the heresy of tritheism in week two. Last week, we talked about the the heresy of modalism, those who believe that that God exists in this, the three persons exist not as persons, but as three modes, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a heresy. Well, this, this heresy today that we're going to talk about is one where I think probably I'm going to be gracious and say well-meaning people several thousand years ago trying to understand this whole concept tried to resolve the paradox of the Trinity by denying that Jesus is fully God. Right, so they embrace the oneness of God. There's only one God, but when they were trying to understand the three persons of God, they missed on that point, and they essentially said Jesus isn't really fully God. Right, and so I think we touched on this earlier that the issue of Jesus and the identity of Jesus was the biggest question mark in the early church, trying to figure out how he could be both God and man. How could how God could be one and yet three. How how Jesus who who and who was he really? How could he have a divine nature and a human nature and 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 so so forth. So by the end of the two hundreds or so, this um, idea was being was moving around the ancient church, and the leading proponent was a guy named Arius. Now Arius was he had he had a important um, position within the church structure and hierarchy. So he wasn't just like an outsider, but the church was grappling with this, and Arius really wanted to avoid tritheism or polytheism. Mm -hmm. And so what he came up with was that, well, the only way to preserve that in his mind was to say that Jesus had to somehow be less than fully God. Mm -hmm. And so he he taught that Jesus was the, the supreme creation of God, that God created Jesus above everything else that he ever made for the purpose of affecting our salvation. Um, But by 325 AD, in the Council of Nicaea, uh, Arianism was condemned by the Church proper. Now, it it carried on for quite a while, um, partly because it was... uh, Certain Roman emperors uh, got in behind it, and then there were other uh, chieftains of, of, of groups outside of the Roman Empire as they were becoming Christianized. Arianism made more sense to them. But eventually, uh, Trinitarianism prevailed because, I believe, because it's the biblical, uh, the biblical approach. But he said that somehow Jesus must be less than God, not fully God, um, maybe a demigod or something like that, but not fully God. Okay, so what are? Let's talk about some modern day um, religions that might tend toward Arianism. Would, would there be anything in today's world that people would be familiar with? Yeah, there's two. Um, one is Unitarianism, mm-hmm. which says, okay, Unitarian. So there's one that's like unitary, right? One. So they say, well, there is a God, but Jesus is just a man. They don't even go so far as to say Jesus was especially created, you know, the mm. best of... He's just a man. And then the other one that, that's familiar to a lot of people is the Jehovah Witnesses and the Watchtower Society, who say that Jesus was less than God. So they actually 
We spent some time looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Their Bible actually is, they tweaked the Bible hmm. in their version to um, deny the idea that we saw. They say the word was a God. They don't say the word was God. So, with, so they say the word, or Jesus was a God with a small g. Okay, so in response to Arianism, right, advocates of the biblical doctrine that we've been talking about throughout this series made two important points, and I think it'd be good for us to finish with these two points, because we every week we've tried to finish on a real practical note. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about kind of a response to Arianism, or a response to the idea that Jesus isn't fully God, right? Mm-hmm. And so, number one, if Jesus isn't fully God, then he's not worthy of our worship. Yeah, so the Trinitarians in the early church pointed out, wait, we're all worshiping Jesus. We've all been worshiping Jesus for 250 or 300 years. Um, If he's not fully God, then we're all a bunch of idolaters. Mm. And that's totally inappropriate to worship a created being. Um, And yet the Bible ascribes worship to Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 through 8... He quotes Old Testament passages that talk about worshiping God, and he ascribes them to Jesus. He says, bow down before the Son. All the angels are commanded to worship the Son. Um, Again, I mentioned John 20, where where Jesus accepts the worship of Thomas. Um, So if he's not God, fully God, then we should really, we're really foolish to worship him. Mm Okay, so that's the first part. The second part, and this is a good one to end with, again, because we've talked about salvation several times throughout this series, and there might be some listeners who are sort of on the fence. Maybe they're even listening to this series because they're trying to wrap their mind around the doctrine of the Trinity because they're interested in maybe pursuing the God of the Bible, but they just, they want to do their due diligence, which I respect. They want to... So, so the, second, the second response to the heresy of Arianism is that if, if Jesus isn't fully God, then he is not able to save us. Explain that. Yeah, a couple of things there. First of all, the Bible always depicts salvation as an act of God, okay? But, um, and a couple of angles on that. So the way the New Testament talks about salvation is that you know, we're fallen creatures. We can't live up to all of God's commands. We can't fulfill the righteousness that God expects and deserves and demands because of his holiness. So the idea is that Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled them perfectly, that he had no sin. And so only, only a divine being could actually fulfill all of the requirements of righteousness on our behalf. Another creature couldn't really do that. And then so another way to think about it is the sacrifice that Jesus made. The Bible teaches that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. How could a creature offer a sacrifice big enough to cover the sins of the whole world? Or even really, and here's what I like to say to people, you know, if if I said, Ross, I, you know what, Ross, I want to die for your sins. I'm going to I'm going to be the bigger guy and I'm going to sacrifice myself for your sins. Here's the problem with that. I got to die for my own sins. Right. I I can't atone for someone else's sins. I have to atone for my own sins because I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And so Jesus who's fully God, which means he lived a sinless, a perfect sinless life on earth, 
when when he goes to the cross for our sins, he actually can die for us. He can apply uh, his blood. God can apply his blood to our account because God the Father doesn't have to apply his blood to his own account because right. he's sinless. He's perfect. Right. And we pointed out earlier that only God can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. So if the, the Savior isn't divine, then whatever he does to, to cover or try to forgive sins doesn't really add up. It doesn't really count. And I like to say that an infinite sacrifice requires an infinite being. Mm, that's good. Yeah, and if Jesus was anything less than God, then he would not be a trustworthy Savior. So that's it for today's lesson, Ross. Thank you. And for anyone who is listening and saying, I want... I want salvation. I want to receive what you're talking about. I want to look to Jesus, and I want to put my faith in Jesus. You can find out more on how to do that at PursueGod.org forward slash start, and I would encourage you to go through that conversation. There's a video there for it. Go through that conversation with a mentor, with a pastor, with a parent, with a friend, with someone who's a Christian who can walk you through that. And if you want to find more on today's lesson, again, this was lesson number four in our Trinity series. You can find it at PursueGod.org forward slash Trinity. And Russ, we've got one more lesson so uh, people can join us next week as we cover lesson five in our Trinity series. We'll see you then.